Luke chapter 9. We are going through the Gospel of Luke, looking at the life of Jesus Christ. We're in Luke chapter 9. This uh, last few days, actually I probably do it quite a bit, I enjoy looking at pictures that I've taken on my phone, especially since moving to Montana and taking pictures of mountains and rivers and streams and fish and sunsets and and sunrises. And uh, think for a minute, what is the most glorious sight your eyes have ever beheld in your lifetime? Think about that for a minute. What's the most glorious sight you have ever that have ever come through your eyes, that you ever have beheld in your life, those type of sights that you've seen it and it takes your breath away. The type of sight that's so amazing that you don't have words to even describe it to someone uh, unless they're there with you to see it. Uh, what was it? Uh, yeah. Glacier National Park, Yellowstone, standing on the shoreline of one of our world's vast oceans, a sunrise, sunset, Maybe sitting beside a, beside a quiet uh, stream. How about gazing into the eyes of a newborn child? Watching the glow of a fire. What about a storm, a huge storm with loud thunder and great uh, flashes of lightning? Or how about the quietness of winter and the snow falling to the ground? I was looking at a picture, a photo. I sent it to the staff this week of almost a year ago when our family went to Glacier National Park and we camped on the east side. And one evening after spending the whole day in the park, we said, let's just go back in again. And the sun was setting and we're going up through the east entrance. And as we are going up towards the summit, the sun is setting and the mountains in the, around there begin to uh, glow with yellow and gold and these red colors. And you come up towards the top and we came and we stopped at this point because as you look at the top of the mountainscape there and the sun glowing behind it, there was these clouds or like this fog that came in. And I was just like, Astounded! I, I don't know how to describe it to you. I can show you a picture of it, but I can't tell you the glory of God's creation that I was beholding at that moment, um, which was just something that was glorious. This morning, as we look at what's titled famously the transfiguration of Christ, we also look to the great biblical theme of God's glory. If you don't know this from Genesis 1 to Revelation, uh, we've got the uh, description of God's glory and you need to pay attention to it because it's a great theme in the word of God. This morning, as we look at Luke chapter 9, the big idea is this. Jesus is the God of glory who alone is worthy of all worship and praise. Would you look at verses 28 through 36 of Luke chapter 9. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. 
Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. And the two men who stood with him, and as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen, the word of God. Father, we are asking that you would reveal your glory to us from your word today. We ask that in the description of the event of your son being glorified before the disciples, that we would learn. So, Holy Spirit, we need your help. We need your strength. We need the understanding of the word. Father, would you use the reading and the preaching of the word for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of the things that we see in this is God's glory. And if you are like me at times when you read through Scripture, uh, sometimes we're just trying to read through and get to another section. And sometimes we miss some details or things that stand out. And the wonderful thing about reading through the Word of God repeatedly is how at different times the Holy Spirit reveals some truth to us that we didn't see 10 years ago when we read the same passage or maybe even a week ago or a day ago. And so it's a wonderful, glorious thing in which God calls in His Word sanctification in which He's constantly growing his people to understand him and become more like Jesus. So as we look at this first point in verse 28 through 31, gazing upon the glory of God, you need to see a little bit of background about God's glory in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. Uh, God's glory in the Old Testament uh, we see in the book of Exodus. The nation of Israel was in captivity. God uh, calls Moses to lead his people out. God displays his power through a number of miraculous things and then he leads his people out into the wilderness and in Exodus chapter 16 is the first display of God's glory to the nation of Israel and it's seen in a huge cloud there's a cloud and that's the way it's described it says like a cloud when you read about God's glory repeatedly in the word of God it says it's like this or it's like that and so the people of Israel saw what was a like a cloud and God's glory look with me at Exodus chapter 24 Exodus chapter 24 verses 15 through 18. Moses has been spending time with the Lord and he's been in the presence of God and he goes up on a mountain, a mountain where he receives the Ten Commandments, where he receives instructions on how to build the tabernacle and a lot of other instructions from the Lord. And it says in Exodus 24, verse 15, it says, Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. 
Moses entered the cloud and went up the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now, if you have read through the book of Exodus, you will remember that when God appears to the people and he's on the mountain, the mountain looks like it's on fire and it looks like there's a cloud. The people are fearful. They don't want to even get near the mountain. So they're like, Moses, you go instead. We're going to hang back here. And Moses goes up on the mountain and this cloud of this majestic glory, as as the apostle Peter calls it, uh, comes there and God is with Moses. Moses is with God in his presence If you go to Exodus 33 and Exodus 34, Moses asks God, God, would you show me your glory? And you think, wow, wait, aren't you in the midst of God's glory? Well, God says, no, Moses, I'm not going to show you my glory, but I'll let my goodness pass before you. And in verse and in chapter 34, Moses comes down the mountain and get this. Imagine spending time in the glory of God in his presence and you come down the mountain. You have no idea, but people look at you and your skin is glowing so much so that the people are afraid. His brother Aaron wants to run away from him, doesn't want to get close to him. So Moses has to put a veil over his face, say, people come back, it's okay. I mean, being in God's glory, in his presence in that manner, every time that Moses would do that, he would go into the tabernacle and he would come out and his skin would be glowing bright, a dazzling brightness because he had spent that time with God. I know that we may not have that same experience as Moses, but is that really something we can experience? When we dwell in the word of God, when we're in the presence of God, it's clear from God's word that he dwells in the heart of the believer. So let us not forget or let us not fall into the trap of going to church or going to a holy place to experience God's presence. We experience God's presence in our heart now. And I believe that we experience more of his glory the more time we spend in his word because the word reveals the glory of God. Well, they built the tabernacle. Uh, when, when the tabernacle was, was, was finished in chapter 40, um, the, 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 the glory of God fills the tabernacle. There was this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. Um, a long, long time ago when I was a kid, I remember watching Indiana Jones. And they were trying to find the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, somebody like, what is this thing? Uh, you're like, what is Indiana Jones? But uh, the Ark of the Covenant and, uh, was built uh, to the, the, the specs that God gave Moses. And when it was finished, put in the tabernacle, uh, God said that he would meet his people at the mercy seat above the uh, Ark of the Covenant where these two gold cherubim angels were and this glowing glory of God, this cloud, and God would speak to them and would speak to Moses through that way. And in chapter 40 of Exodus, God comes down and fills the tabernacle. Well, you jump ahead in Israel's history, and there's always these people called the Philistines. If you've heard of the story of David and Goliath, Goliath was a Philistine. And you would have accounts in the Old Testament of the Philistines killing thousands of Israelites, and the Israelites killing thousands of Philistines, and on and on, back and forth. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, though, the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God's presence would come. They had taken it into battle, and so the Philistines won that day and took it. It's a crazy story, and if you read uh, 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 4, you'll read how um, you can be the worst parent ever. A guy named Eli, 
who uh, decided he wasn't going to discipline his children. But aside from that, you get to the chapter 4, and the, the, the ark is taken away, and there's a child that's born, and the child's name is Ichabod. And it means that the presence of the Lord has departed. This woman who had this child was more, uh, and it, was more, it was more important that God's presence had left than it was the fact that her husband died that day in battle. You go to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, King David's son Solomon, he builds a temple. The temple is finished. He dedicates the temple. He prays and God's glory comes down out of heaven and fills the temple and it looks like fire. And when people see the glory of God throughout scripture, it's consistent. People hit the ground. People fall to the ground when they see the glory of God. Turn to 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles. Chapter 7. It says in verse 3, When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. I have no doubt that if Jesus visibly stood right here before us at this moment, we would all get out of our chairs and fall on our faces because his glory and his greatness that would be revealed is just astounding. We can't even, we don't have words to describe, but when you read through scripture, you might also recognize at times when angels appear to people as messengers of God. What do the people do whenever an angel shows up in scripture? Anyone know? They what? I heard fear. What else? They fall down because the glory of God radiates from his holy ones. The last Old Testament passage I encourage you to read is Ezekiel chapters 9, 10, and 11. Ezekiel has a vision that God gives him. And in that vision, the departure of the glory of God from the nation of Israel. It's actually a very sad passage of scripture there. And from that point, all the way to the New Testament, go and turn to Luke chapter 2. There's 600 years where the glory of God is not displayed to the people of God. 600 years, no glory of God displayed to the people of God. And so you look at Luke chapter 2. You go back to Christmas. You look back to the birth of Christ and you see the glory of God after 600 years being displayed. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Remember the shepherds? It says that in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night and an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear. Just the two things we just said. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people for unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, and suddenly there with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The glory of God returned to the people of God in the person 
of Jesus Christ. But imagine 600 years without seeing the glory of God. We have a wonderful text here that I want you to look with me here in verse 28 back in Luke 9. It says, eight days after the sayings. Last week, we spent some time looking at Jesus saying, hey, you need to count the cost. If you're going to follow me, it's going to cost you something. You got to pick up your cross. You got to commit to this. You got to do these things. You got to humble yourself. It says about eight days later is when the transfiguration happens here. He takes Peter, James, and John. They come up repeatedly through the gospel account as the three closest to Jesus. And out of those three, you see that John's the closest of them. There's a lot of similarities as they go up to the mountain here. Like when Moses went up on the mountain, he was with God and God's presence and the glory of God. And look at, so I want you to look at verse 29. What was Jesus doing in verse 29? He was praying, right? Something that he does repeatedly that's recorded in the gospel accounts. He's constantly going up to a mountain, out to a quiet place somewhere where he is able to be quiet and pray and talk with the Father. In this account, he has Peter, James, and John with him. It says that his appearance was altered. The Gospel of Mark uses the word and says that Jesus was transfigured, a Greek word which we get the word uh, uh, metamorphosis, an actual change happened. The Gospel of Matthew in this account says that Jesus' face was dazzling, shining uh, like the sun. This morning when I I was driving here this morning, the sun was rising up over the mountains and I ended up putting my sunglasses on because the sun's brightness and the, the glory of the sun was shining. That's a picture of what is happening in this moment as Jesus is there praying and talking with the Father and the people, uh, Peter, James, and John are with him. But it's clear that light emanated from Jesus. It came out of him. His clothes were dazzling white like the angels when they come and give a message to people. The splendor of Jesus' deity, that he is God, is shining through his humanity, his human body. And one of the things that this does for the disciples who witness this is for them, many of them, they saw Jesus as a man, a rabbi, a good teacher, and not necessarily God until later. They at times acknowledged that he was Messiah. But here you have God the Father displaying through his son that his son whom he loves is God. Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 3 gives us a description of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus Christ is God, whether you believe that or not. We happen to have an eyewitness account here to go with the prophetic word, which helps us see this truth, and I pray that you do. Look at verse 30 back in Luke chapter 9. It says, And behold, two men were talking with him. 
Who's the two people that are talking with Jesus on the mount? Moses and who? Elijah. Man, I, I got some answers on that one there. It's okay to respond here. So does anyone know what is the significance or what does is, what is Moses represent? Anyone? The law. So Moses is there representing the law or uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. What does Elijah represent? The prophets. Elijah was a prophet and he represents all that the prophets taught and wrote that God told them that they declared to the people. And so you've got the law. When you read the law, it talks about the Messiah. It points to the Messiah. You have the prophets who write about, speak about, uh, speak to the nation of Israel about the Messiah and uh, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and the glory to follow. Moses and Elijah, and you go, how did the disciples know? They didn't have, they didn't pull out. Let me see what Moses looks like here. Hey, that Elijah there, he's got a beard. I, like yeah, his description, I think that's him. No, somehow in the discussion of Jesus and Moses and Elijah, they knew that's who that was. One of the things I was reminded of is the fact that it says in the text uh, what does it describe about Moses and Elijah there talking with Jesus? What's it say about them? Look at there, verse 30 there. They appeared in what? Glory. So there's glory emanating from these two uh, guys, two humans, two men who were not perfect. And they died and they went to be with God. And so the glory of God is emanating from there. There's glory there. And so it helps us understand that when a person dies in this world who has faith in Christ and goes to be with God, there is this glory. Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, it says, When Christ, when Jesus Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. You see, there's a promise for God's believers today that, yes, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, the thief next to him said, hey, when you, remember, when you go in your kingdom, remember me. And he's like, hey, you'll be with me today in paradise. But there's a point coming in the future in which all of God's people will have their body, which dies and goes to the dust in this world, glorified. A glorified body, which we can't even understand today. No more sickness, no more disease, no more sin. But being in the glory of God for eternity. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Verses 20 and 21 tells us this. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body. You ever thought about that before? Man, my lowly body. Man, I, I was, I got home last night or yesterday afternoon. My son Jonathan and I, we were out fishing at a creek and I'm like, I walk in and my ankles are hurting. I'm like, man, why am I getting ankle pain? Or I, I went on a mountain bike ride with Dave on Monday and Tuesday, I couldn't believe the soreness. My lowly body. Won't it be a glorious, wonderful thing? to no longer have sickness, to no longer have muscle pain, to not have to have a surgery or procedure again, to not ever have to take any medication whatsoever, to think that 
a glorified body in the presence of God, walking with him as his plan from the beginning in the garden with Adam and Eve. It's a wonderful, glorious thing. And so Paul writes there in Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Another thing I'd point out there that Jesus Christ, after he died and he was buried and he rose again, he ascended to heaven, but he is glorious. He has, he has a glorious body now and therefore something to look forward to when he returns and we are with him. Look back in our text, Luke 9 verse 31. Moses and Elijah there, they're talking with Jesus, says, who appeared in glory and spoke of his what? His departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. He just told the disciples that he was going to Jerusalem for a reason. And when he would go there, he'd be rejected. He would be killed. And a third day, he would rise. Uh, Peter rebuked him for that. But the law... And the prophets, Moses and Elijah, are talking with Jesus about what he would go to do. And I wonder if it was like in a moment for Jesus, like he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, on a moment of, of, of maybe just a great concern, maybe this anxiety of like, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to take this cup of wrath from the Father, the sin of the world. And just like he was comforted by an angel in the Garden of Gethsemane, maybe this is a point which God is comforting Jesus with Moses and Elijah who talk about what he is going to do. Jesus said that he came to fulfill the law and he came to fulfill the prophets. And when you read Luke chapter 24, after Jesus rises from death to life, he's walking on a road with two other disciples and they don't even know it's Jesus. They don't even recognize him and he's walking with them there. And he's like, hey guys, what happened? And they're like, oh, you don't know what happened? And they try to tell Jesus, hey, this, you know, he died and all this. And he goes, let me tell you something. And he begins with the law and the prophets and he goes through all of it to say that all of it points about Jesus, the Messiah. And then at a point where they go, oh, wow, it's Jesus. Then he leaves them. All of Scripture is about Jesus. I hope if anything you get that today, that yes, we need to go, know about the glory of God, but you need to know that all of Scripture is about Jesus and you need to read it so that you will grow in your understanding of Jesus and walk with Jesus. Look at verse 32 through 33, back in Luke chapter 9 here. As you go back to that, I, I want to encourage you something with this as well. When we look at the law and the prophets and we look at how they point to Jesus and how the New Testament teaches us that um, Jesus has fulfilled those things and we're waiting for his return. And I'm telling you, hey, read the word because it's about Jesus. If I could encourage you, to, to, to stop the coffee mug or wall art Bible reading practice. And what I mean by that is I, probably most of you've got that coffee mug at home with the Bible verse on it. Nothing wrong with that. You've got the wall art with that famous verse hanging in your house somewhere. Nothing wrong at all with that. But I believe too many Christians approach the word of God. Oh, I feel, 
I need some peace today. I'm just going to look for a verse of peace. And it's like, wait, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. So read his word. There's nothing wrong. I mean, I remember going like this, going, all right, Lord, teach me something today. And I'm like, it says that Saul went into the cave to relieve himself. It's like, that doesn't help me. (laughs) And then I just close the book and go out for the day. No, Jesus says it's all about him. So go and read all about him so that you can learn about his glory and his work in your life. So let's go to the second point. Stunned with God's glory and speaking too quickly. In verse 32, what are the disciples doing? What are they doing? They're asleep. We don't know if this is at nighttime, daytime. They're sleeping just like in the Garden of Gethsemane when they're praying with Jesus, they fall asleep. But they wake up, they see the glory of God. They see Moses and Elijah in verse 33. And as the men, Moses and Elijah, were parting from them, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then it says, not knowing what he said. Now, if you followed Peter through Luke up to this point, or if you were here at the beginning of the year, uh, Rich Labrie was preaching and talking about the life of Peter. And, you know, Peter, he starts off and he hits a home run. And when Jesus says, hey, who am I? They say, oh, some people say this, this, this. And he's like, but who do you say? And he says, hey, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. Home run. Good job, Peter. And then right after that, Peter strikes out because um, he's like, Jesus says, hey, I'm going to die. I'm going to the cross. And he's like, no way, Jesus, you're not going to do that. He's like, Satan, get behind me. Peter just saying what he's thinking. Here we have this other point here where it's another swing and a miss. Sometimes it's good to just be silent. Any amens? Sometimes it's good just to be silent. In circumstances in life, someone says something, sometimes it's good just to be silent. Sometimes we just need to hold our tongue. But what I want to point us to here is that sometimes we need to be just silent when we read the Word of God and just reflect on the glory of God revealed through His words. And so you've got Peter who's saying, hey, we're going to build some tents. I don't know if he's referring to uh, the Feast of the Tabernacles in Leviticus chapter uh, 23. And you know what? If I was living in Israel, I would have loved that one because you get to build a house or live in a tent for a certain number of days. I love to go sleep in a tent and be outside. But maybe he's referring to that. I don't know. Or maybe he just doesn't know what to say. But here's the thing. Some of you as followers of Christ know when I say a mountaintop high, you know what I'm talking about. For some of you is that moment when you came to faith. For some of you, it was that uh, an actual retreat or a camp, or it was that moment where you're out with God by yourself. But there's a mountaintop high that happens. Uh, Peter, James, and John are seeing the revealed glory of God. And Peter's like, Jesus, I don't want to go down the mountain. Growing up, my sisters and I would always go to this summer camp called Heartland Christian Camp. Every summer, could not wait to go to camp there. And we would spend a week there with uh, uh, 300 or so kids. We would hear the teaching of the Word of God, and we would sing, and we'd play all kinds of games. But there was this something that would happen. And I don't know how to describe it to you unless you're there where the Holy Spirit works in your life and you don't want to leave that place. Friday comes, yeah, there may be because of you made some new friends or you just enjoyed being away from home or whatever. But for many times, it's like, I don't want to leave this moment with God. 
And I wonder if that's what Peter was thinking. And so Peter's trying to keep the mountaintop high going. And I wonder how many of you as followers of Christ are trying to keep a past mountaintop high going today when God is wanting to do something new in your life now. I think that too many churches struggle with Christians trying to relive a past mountaintop high and say, I'm going to make it happen now. One example of many, singing songs in church. It's okay, you can laugh about that one. Every church I've served in, there's always comments about singing in church. And I truly believe that it is tied to believers having mountaintop highs or moments when they come to faith. Because before they came to faith, unless they just grew up in the church, they didn't know how to sing. They didn't know what to sing. They didn't know or even love the songs that were about God. But think about the moment when you come to faith in God and you're like, hey, I grew up in this and, and hey, we were singing hymns and I learned all these hymns. So hymns are important for you today. For others, it's like, I don't even know what a hymn is. A mighty fortress is our God. What is that? And you're like, but I learned to sing, uh, uh, you know, this song here. And it's a praise song and, and, and with a band and someone else like, hey, we never even had a piano or organ. And what happens is I think too many Christians get stuck in churches or church hop or leave because... We are stuck on past mountaintop highs and we try to force them upon the whole church when that's not what the Holy Spirit is doing. Now, with that, I love singing hymns. I love singing praise songs. I've been listening to a number of new hymns. Some of you are like, there's no way you can have new hymns. They were written in the 14, 15, 1600s. You know, there's no way you can have a new hymn. That's called a praise song. No, there's, a, there's this couple, Keith and Kristen Getty, and they write modern day hymns. And if I played for some of them with a piano, you'd think it was a hymn because it's got four verses and it's got all these stanzas and all these things there. We need to know that our past experiences with God on the mountain does not mean that they stay in the past. And it doesn't mean that they're exactly the same for all the people. Moses went up on the mountain. The rest of the nation of Israel didn't. Peter and James and John were there at the transfiguration. The other disciples were not. I would encourage you with this. If you have, because uh, I'm just using the example of singing. And for some of you, are like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Well, stay in church long enough and you'll find out. Um, my question for you would be, do you worship worship? Have worship songs become your idol? Songs are written to glorify God. And so you may not know all the songs that we sing. There are certain songs we do not sing here because they're not theologically correct. There are certain hymns I could walk you through that I will not sing or we will not sing them here because they're not, theolo they're not biblical. Songs are written to glorify God. So reflect on that when we gather for the corporate singing. So enough harping on that. I'll just say this. The word of God never changes. The gospel of Jesus must never be changed. But methods in churches change as generations pass and cultures change. Since February, since the beginning of the year, coronavirus, COVID-19, has changed the face of methods of churches in this world. Who would have thought 
that for weeks at a time around the world, Christians would not gather in person, but have church online, just as people are watching right now. That's a method that changed. And a lot of people push back at that. But to think that that is now a way that people right now are at home. And some of you were months back worshiping God, hearing the preaching of the word, giving online. Methods change. God's word never does. James chapter 1 verse 19 Speaking about hearing the word of God and doing the word of God, he says, be quick to hear, be quick to hear, slow to speak, says slow to anger. My encouragement for you would be to read, to listen, to hear the word of God, be slow to speak so that you can hear what the Holy Spirit is teaching you. Let's look at these last two verses in verse 34 through 36. The third point is declaring honor and glory to the Son. Look back there in in, in verse 34. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. There it is, the cloud again. A cloud now covers this mountain where Jesus and Moses and Elijah and the disciples are at. And a voice from heaven, the same voice that came when Jesus came out of the water at his baptism, when he said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Here he says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. I hope you see that this is huge. This is so important in this declaration because God the Father is declaring that Jesus Christ is the Savior, that he is the Messiah, and that he is God. This is so huge for Peter, James, and John, who've been waiting for the Messiah, who kind of like, hey, they make a good declaration, but then in the next moment, they are like, who is Jesus? They see him maybe only as a man at times. And here, God the Father says, this is my son. That's why you see his glory and his splendor. And what does the Father say to them to do? What's it say? Is this my son and do what? Listen to him. Hear him. Highlight that. Underline that. Write that down. Are you listening to Jesus? Are you listening to his teaching from his word? Or are you listening to the enemy, Satan, and the demons, and those who are not followers of the Lord? Are you following and listening to them? Is it evident in how you act towards other people? Maybe some of you are listening to the false teachings in this world and you're watching stuff on TV or reading other Christian types or so-called Christian books and it's not biblical. I would say this, if I could challenge all of you with this, some of us read, read, spend too much time reading Christian books about the Bible when we should be reading the Bible. There's not a problem with looking at other teachers and what they're teaching about the Word of God. But too many Christians don't read this and pick up the latest author at the bookstore or online. Just stop doing it and read the Word of God, especially if you've never read the Word of God in its entirety. Maybe set all the other books down and just read through the Word of God. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Listen to Jesus Verse 36, after the voice had spoken, Jesus was found 
alone. And I'll tell you this, that's my favorite verse in this passage here. You know why? It says Jesus was found alone. And every time I read that this week, I love this verse because it told me that Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough for all that we need for life here now and life for eternity. And I pray that you know this and you see this clearly, that Jesus is enough among all the things that we chase in this world, all the things that we try to do, that Jesus is enough and beyond and above anything and everything we can do in this world. I mean, you can pursue whatever dream, you can get whatever degree, you can go to whatever office, you can get whatever job, you can retire with the greatest retirement, and yet none of it will be enough to save you for all eternity and to witness the glory of God. Peter was so impacted by this account on the mountain, I want you to turn to one more passage here. It's in 2 Peter chapter 1. The Apostle Peter, who later on, the night that Jesus goes to the cross, that, day, that morning before he went to the cross, Peter denied knowing Jesus three times, ran away, sobbing, broken. Jesus dies. He raises back to life. <clears throat> later on, the end of the book of John shows this restoration with Peter and Jesus walking along the shoreline. And Peter, at the end of his life, writes to the church. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, he writes about the baptism and the transfiguration. And if you look at this in 2 Peter 1, look at verse 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we were made known, when, when we made... Let me start that over. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain and we have something more sure. Pay attention church. Look at verse 19. We have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts knowing this first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit I am so thankful that Peter wrote about this because he said church he's writing to believers he says hey I was an eyewitness. I was on the mountain. I heard the Father's voice. I saw the glory of God in Jesus Christ. But he said, you know what? We have something more important than my eyewitness. You're like, what's more important than that? Something happens in a court of law. Hey, we need the eyewitnesses. Wait, there's something more important than the eyewitness? Yes, because think about it. Anyone can question anyone's eyewitness account. You could just say, ah, oh, you just lied and made that up because you don't believe what they saw. Peter says we have something more sure. What is that? 
the prophetic word of God that was given by the Holy Spirit where men wrote down exactly what God wanted to be written down. And the word of God is not for us to just throw out some interpretation, but we know that the word of God is the best interpretation of itself. Church, I ask that you would read the word of God, that you would behold the glory of God in scripture. I believe that the more that you read scripture, the more the Holy Spirit reveals the glory of God to you. And the more that you grow in your understanding of Jesus, you mature and you stop walking in immature ways. And God changes your life and uses you to work in other people's lives all for his glory. So if you go back to where we started, the big idea is this. Jesus is the God of glory who alone is worthy of all worship and praise. And so here's the question we're asking every single week. All right, transfiguration, glory of God, big wow. How does it apply to my life? You have to ask that. I mean, the reason for you coming to gather with people at this time is for the preaching of the word, for the singing of praises to God. It's not just to sit back and go, oh, did he say something I agree with or not? How does this apply to your life? Well, here it is. We read it already. But God has created us in his image and in his likeness to reflect his glory as a mirror would reflect the sun. But every single one of us have sinned. And Jesus Christ in all of his glory humbled himself and added to his deity, his humanity. And therefore he gave up his glory that he had with the Father in heaven and came to live in this world and live this life. And he never sinned one time. And he went to the cross where, yes, he was beaten, spit upon. He bled to death. But the greatest problem there that he faced was our sin in which God made him who knew no sin so that we could be, know that we could become the righteousness of God. And Jesus Christ bore your sins and died in your place. He was buried. Three days later arose, conquering Satan, sin, and death. And the disciples saw him a few days later ascending into heaven where he is ruling and reigning now in all of his glory. In the Gospel of John, chapter 17, Jesus is praying, Father, restore to me the glory that I had with you from the beginning. Know that Jesus loves you so greatly that he would give up his glory and add humanity to himself and take upon all of your sin and die for you and be raised to life again so that you could be set free. Revelation 21 verse 23 says this, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The description in the book of Revelation of all eternity, the heavenly city, this place where God is dwelling and his people will dwell for eternity, there is no light switches. There is no lamps that are needed. It says that the light is the glory of God, and it comes from Jesus Christ. It emanates from the Lamb who sits on the throne. What a sight we will behold for all eternity for Christians who follow Jesus Christ. Those who believe in Christ will experience the light of the glory of God, and we celebrate that that is what we were created for. 
First John 3, 2 says that when we see Jesus, we'll be like him. And Revelation chapter 14 and chapter 20 says, for those who reject Christ, they will not be made like him. They will not be glorified. It actually says in Revelation 14, Revelation 20, that those who reject Christ will be tormented forever in hell in the presence, it says, of the holy angels of the Lamb. If you find yourself in that position, I just encourage you today to repent of your sins, believe in Jesus Christ as Lord, and He's the one who saves you. If you're a Christian, let me ask you this as we close. Is Jesus worthy of praise? All right, we'll let the plane fly over. Maybe it was the plane. I just didn't hear you there. I kind of heard a mumbling. So if you're a Christian, this question is for you. Is Jesus worthy of all of our praise? Is Jesus worthy of all of our worship? Is Jesus worthy of the songs that we sing? Of the life that we live? In every action, everything we say, everything we do, Jesus is worthy. And so maybe you're having a struggle right now. Worst day or week of your life. Jesus is still worthy of all your praise. He's still worthy of all your worship. And I believe for some of us, when we praise him, when we worship him, that he takes our eyes off of our present circumstances and turns them on Jesus. We see the glory of God and we have joy in our hearts. Father, receive the praise of the songs that we sing. May you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.